When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No matter what you're looking for in a non-alcoholic beer, there's only one name that has it all. Athletic Brewing Co. Full flavor? It's athletic. Huge variety? It's athletic. Award-winning styles you can get online, at the bar, or the grocery store? It's athletic. In fact, when it comes to amazing non-alcoholic beer, there's no question. It's athletic. Ask for it and find out. Go to askforathletic.com to find your closest retailer today. Near beer. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of John Richardson and the Future Notes. This week we will be discussing politics, so strap in for that. But first of all, we will discuss last week's episode and we will first and foremost say hello to the Future Notes. So hello, Ed and Mark. Hello. Good evening. How are you, Mark? Um, That's a very good question. I don't quite know because now everything seems so strange that lockdown's been going on for so long that I, I kind of feel like I'm watching myself in a movie of my life that I'm now bored of. But I need to keep watching for some reason because if I don't, my, my, family, my family will die. That's how I feel. Um, sometimes it's okay just to say I'm all right. <laughs> Ed, how are you? Are you watching a movie of yourself? Or? Uh, no, I'm. Well, I've just become a full-time single dad. So uh, if I'm interrupted by a small, teary three-year-old daughter, then uh, I'm sorry, but she is my priority, and I'll uh, I'll be bailing. Okay, okay, good. So uh, Mark's having a breakdown, and Ed is uh, going to leave at some point to do something far more important. So strap into the <laughs> musings for an hour of me on politics. <laughs> Can you imagine? Turn offs in their droves. Um, so we're discussing politics this week. We discussed travel last week um there's an obvious dominic cummings joke there uh which i won't make but uh we have had uh, some feedback in general feedback from sarah and i picked sarah because she's from australia so it's time to strip on for another accent you flaming galah <laughs> she says um i love the podcast you guys are great i'll listen to it in my car and there's nothing like getting out of the car in a fit of rage before I go to work. Um, <laughs> so I didn't realise we were making people angry. It, it wasn't the goal. She says, I was going to suggest education as a topic, and then you did it, so I'm pretty pleased with myself. What about politics next? She's done it again. She's nailed it. She's suggesting now I stop off in Australia to do a gig for her on my way to New Zealand to do a gig for three people. So... Um, don't know what that does to the carbon footprint of this tour. Don't know. I think we should redo our PR strategy, though. It's like, you know, John and Richard of the Future Notes leaves you in a fit of rage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're surprisingly more popular. I, I mean, it, it feels like we're on the wrong side of the globe as well. It feels like we're more popular. The further you are from us, the more tolerable we are to listen to. Well, we are doing quite well, though, aren't we, in the charts? We are locked in a battle with Brian Cox and Robin Ince. Yeah, the Infinite Monkey Cage. Yeah. Infinite Monkey Cage, yeah. I mean, it's not a contest, is it? It would be wrong to say that it's a battle because really we're friends and we live in a world where you can enjoy both of those things. But it's hard not to compare yourself where I guess in that situation, I am the Robin Inson, you two are my cocks. 
That was crafted. That was well crafted. Thank you. Um, some work does go into this. These, these, these penis references don't just fall out of me. No. Uh, so we're about to ask the question, how fucked are we as far as politics is concerned? I usually have a whiskey, and I'll be honest, I wasn't going to presume this week to have a whiskey. I thought, well, actually, you sort of know how bad the situation is, so you can tell me whether it's some weeks, you know, you might want to say, actually, John, you don't need a whiskey this week. You can just have a tonic water or, you know, just have a nice Sauvignon Blanc. So um, I'll put it to you two to sort of drinks pair. You can be the sommeliers for how depressed I'm going to be after this answer. What What do you think drinks-wise I need to get through you telling me how fucked the, the world is politically? Mm. Uh, have you got any meths? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I was going to go slightly more sophisticated than meths, but only because when I worked in Jamaica all those many moons ago, I was on a bus one day and there was a sort of preacher on the bus doing a bit of lay preaching and he, he announced to the whole of the bus, he goes, there are many ticks what suck the blood, but the tick what suck the most blood is the politic. And, <laughs> and uh, so I'm going to recommend a Ray and Nephew overproof rum uh, you know, 80% proof that will definitely be putting hairs on your chest to cope with what is about to come your way, John. Right. So you're saying something very strong. Okay. Um, well, I have to offer you, I've got a Chinese sort of state liqueur, which was brought back <laughs> by a friend, which is about 60%. You say um, friend. You say friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We knew I had a pub in the garage and said, I want to bring you back something you definitely haven't got. Um, which you know, liver disease, yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely won't want. Yeah, I thought you might want to sleep in the garage, so I brought you a drink that will ruin your marriage. Um, <laughs> I can't tell you what it's called, which seems to ruin the game somewhat because I don't understand any of the packaging. But it's in a sort of red and gold and yellow box, and um, even the smell makes me want to choke. So we're going to call this a sort of this is very much a panic button drink. With the whiskey, I sort of have it anyway. I'm only going to drink this if if I feel you've depressed me to that degree. So who's going to go first this week? Who wants to dive in and tell me how bad the political system is? Uh... <laughs> Wait, so it's, it's, it's so bad. It's so bad. I once stood as a paper candidate for the Green Party in the local council elections in, in Lambeth and almost got in by mistake. That's how bad it is. You know, without any campaigning whatsoever, I almost won. Yeah, I think with this episode, we we have to put in some caveats, don't we, really? Mm -hmm. It's a bit like education. We're not going to talk party politics, but we're going to talk about, I guess, democracy more than politics, the, the, the mechanisms of political discourse. And, of course, that's going to be opening us up for abuse from just about everybody. What was it Churchill said? Democracy is the worst form of government apart from all the others, and this will be the worst podcast about democracy apart from all the others. Yes, well, I mean, democracy is the word to get straight into, isn't it? I mean, we do live in one, don't we? Well, we, we do in the UK, sort of, but the world is not democratic at all. In fact, the Economist Intelligence Unit do this thing called the Democracy Index, and they bring it out every year, and they just look at the state of democracy around the world. They've been doing it now for about, I think, six or seven years. And <laughs> every year the headline is, it was fucking bad last year, but it's got worse. It really is just awful so only 5.7 percent of the world's population would live in what you would consider a fully functioning democracy a full democracy and we can talk about what that is in a minute 
About 43% of us live in a flawed democracy where there's really quite significant problems with governance, sort of infringement on media freedoms, that kind of thing. Uh, the United States would be considered a flawed democracy. 16% of the world's population live under hybrid regimes, uh, places like Pakistan where there's you know free speech is curtailed, the judiciary is not really separate from the government. And 36% of us you know, are at the bottom in these authoritarian uh, regimes, which are sort of autocracies where, you know, political parties aren't allowed to form, you know, so and Russia uh, would be considered one of those, despite its pretensions to be democratic. So the world is entirely undemocratic. The UK is ranked the 14th most democratic nation in the world. The US is the 24th, I think. Uh, so it's below Korea. So there you go. So no, we're not very democratic at all. It, it does feel like at the moment nobody's happy when you talk about a democracy. For the two of you specifically, we've talked about a lot of topics over the weeks already. In in your job of trying to move things forward, is politics the biggest barrier to you? You know, we talked about the problems of business and the rich and inequality. In terms of being able to say, I've got this idea, this will make things better, but nobody's listening. Is, is politics the worst thing you have to deal with? The trouble is politics is the interface through where a lot of these issues are sort of come to the fore. And the problem is if your political discourse and your political system is either flawed or creaking, then it means a lot of these issues don't actually get the attention and the presence they need. I mean, if you take something like climate change, which is obviously one of the big focuses that Mark and I have worked on for many years, you know, you have a basic expectation that your government and your politics will be there to keep you safe. And yet we've seen 20 years of sort of constant political failure to get anywhere near the type of kind of climate response that we should be having. And and so I think in that sense, yes, it, it can be a barrier. And, and once you get established orthodoxies or assumptions that underpin your politics, uh, then it's very hard to break through them. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things I try to remain resolutely is is a party political as much as I can, because Otherwise, it's very hard to do the job that we do in that you have to be able to bring people together. And, and the problem with politics, uh, particularly in this country, is, is it's so tribalized. So, you know, the moment there's a sniff that you might be a Tory or, or vote Labour, then somebody else you might need to get on with will instantly discount you. So I try, I use this mantra, which is think like an engineer, not like a politician. So when I work with politicians, it's really interesting because you see them come into the room and they're instantly thinking, hey, I'm, I'm going to win this one. Who's on my side? How do I win people around? Are you going to be a problem for me? What's the, what are the optics here? You know, so they're basically trying to work out how they're going to win the argument. Whereas when engineers walk into the room, they kind of go, well, who's got a problem and can we all solve it together? So I'm always trying to think much more like an engineer than a politician. So it is it is quite problematic. And of course, certain things can only be solved by political means or, or, or governance means. Do you do it the other way around as well? Do you tell engineers to think like politicians? <laughs> no, I like engineers. <laughs> yeah. And bridges that get built and are safe. Well, exactly. I mean, you, you don't get bridges built from a, from a left-wing or a right-wing perspective. You don't have Tory bridges or, or Labour bridges or, God help us, Liberal Democrat bridges. You know, and over time, bridge building's got better because it's, it's based on engineering and increasing knowledge and increasing cooperation and increasing strength of the tools that engineers have. Whereas over the same period of time, our politics, uh, you know, looks like a, a ramshackle shed. <laughs> so if we're 14th, where are the most democratic countries in the world? Who's top? Well, yeah, it's no surprise. 
surprises there. It's, 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 it's a whole suite of Scandinavian nations, Norway, Iceland, Sweden, you know, Finland as, as ever. We might as well just kind of cancel the whole podcast series and just say, tell everyone <laughs> to go to Finland. Uh, we just seem to get most things right. It is revealing as well that we, we don't seem to be getting any emails from listeners there. So they're obviously, <laughs> the people <laughs> there don't feel like the world is broken enough that they need to listen to a podcast. Like no, it. not at all. Not oh, at all. God, I can't wait to hear your Finnish accent, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it comes back to the, something we've mentioned a lot in this and went in our very first episode about the social contract. If you go to Scandinavian countries, the social contract seems to be fairly intact and uh, considered more, more democratic as a result. Iceland is, is often cited as a democratic beacon, but it is worth bearing in mind that Iceland is, in fact, population-wise, the size of Leicester which is a lot easier to manage politically, I imagine, than, say, you know, the United States. Yeah, it's about the same size of Norwich as well. When I had that Icelandic financial crisis, I was just saying, everyone going, you're putting money in Icelandic financial investments. It's like, yeah, since when did Norwich become a kind of icon of financial investment? <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, put all your money in the Norwich. <laughs> <laughs> what is the difference then? 14th to 1st, what is it that you can do and achieve there that you, you can't do here? And why is our system worse than theirs i guess what have they got that makes them properly democratic and what are we lacking we are properly democratic sort of in the uk um we're in that first tranche of what they call a, a fully functioning democracy so it's just degrees of, of how how good it is but i have to say even if you live in a fully functioning democracy it's still shit okay because democracies aren't democratizing anything okay in general they don't democratize health wealth education opportunities so if you look for instance at inequality okay inequality is as rife in the Scandinavian nations as it is here and in the United States. I'll give you uh, I'll give you the first point though that was that that was the first point at which the hand moved towards the uh, liqueur there when you said oh, we've talked all about democracy and how important it is and he said well basically even democracy is a shit. That was the first that was really good. That really upset me that. So well done. Yeah, no, I mean they are shit. I mean so we've got mass inequality wherever you go. The press in most of those nations isn't free. You know, it talks about being free, but in most of our nations, the press is owned by private organisations that have their own partisan take. So they're not really holding people to account. They're trying to get their man or woman in that one room in that parliament so that they can get their things they care about up the agenda, which is why we don't trust the press, which is something we might come on to in another episode. And, you know, one of the aspects of a, of a functioning democracy is the idea that you have property rights, the idea that you as an individual can profit from an idea you've had or a piece of machinery you own or a property you own and that's supposed to be one of the cornerstones of democracy but unfortunately with property rights once you have some you can buy some more and some more so all the property whether it's intellectual or physical ends up in a very small uh, number of hands you know i mean abraham lincoln imagined democracy in his gettysburg address as a government you know by the people of the people and for the people and what we've got now really is a government of very few people for the benefit of an even smaller number of people so i guess what we have here is the illusion of choice then is that what you're saying we have a system where we're sort of obliged to vote every four or five years and i guess we'll get onto the fact that most people choose not to but in terms of what we're being offered we don't have a choice and we're not voting for something that is going to change the big problems we face as society well no because i think this is the other thing is like you often get this sort of the bipartisanship it's like both sides basically telling you that only they can save you from disaster uh, and so you know you get that ridiculous oppositionism which sets in so 
yes, you're, you're being offered something, but uh, it's always as a zero-sum game. It's like, you know, it's it's us or Oblivion or it's us or Armageddon. Yeah, and that's because politics is, is an economies of scale, the game, a winner takes all. So the thing is, what we what we find is in almost all democratic nations is that people like the idea of democracy. So they, they like it, they think it's a good thing, but they don't like the way it's practiced. And as you go down from the sort of the top of democracy, which is the idea of it, to the practice of it, it gets worse and worse. So we like the ideas of, you know, if you've got a constitution in your country, you know, people generally say, I like the constitution, it's a good thing, I'm very happy that we've got that. But then when they say, well, how do you think, what do you think about parliament, your parliament? Well, I'm not so happy about that. I don't think it really upholds the constitution particularly well. And you go, well, what do you think about the current government? Well, okay, the parliament's not bad, but the government is a disaster. And you say, well, you know, what about these various political parties? Well, you know, they're terrible. So as you go down, you know, we, we trust the constitution most, the parliament a little bit less, the sitting government a little bit less than that, and political parties less than that. So the closer it gets to you, the less you like it. Sweden's a good example. So, you know, 81% of Swedes are satisfied with democracy, but only 32% of them trust political parties. So something's getting lost in the translation from the ideals of democracy to what we're actually being offered. And one of those things, of course, is it's not particularly democratic. It's We talk about having a representative democracy where you elect someone and they represent you, but of course they don't represent you. You vote for them and then they completely replace you because they, they never consult you for the next four years about anything that you may have an opinion on. Yeah. Because I think that then unleashes a potentially deadly cycle of self-reinforcing cynicism too. I mean, as as Mark's saying, you know, know, we hate politicians. We argue they're all the same. You know, they're Mm. in it for themselves, you know, which is pretty simplistic actually in the extreme. Uh, You know, it's sort of the the lazy man's perspective. So therefore we don't vote. You know, minority governments get in. We let the demons run amok. And then that makes us all the more cynical and embittered. And so, you know, the great virtuous circle that could be there is, is completely undermined by a vicious cycle of recrimination. Yeah, we really don't like it. And I think you say most people like democracy and they think it would work fine if it wasn't for the actual politicians. It's a bit like a solo Tom York album. I always think, you know, it sounds like it might be brilliant and uplifting, but when you actually get to it, it's a turgid bunch of fucking nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you what, the claws come out when it's the evening record, don't they? (laughs) Poor old Tom York having to listen to the podcast there, just thinking, I might email in, I'm really enjoying these guys and they're easy. I might write a song about them. Oh, please don't, Tom. Please don't. You know, I think Tom himself would have to agree on honest reflection that his solo albums are not the best. (laughs) Speaking as someone who's put out work that they don't particularly think is is the best that they or anyone is capable of, I would never have that conversation (laughs) if someone says, no, as I'm talking, actually, I realise I have said that to several people. I've said it a lot about my book. And that's the first time, episode seven, that I've mentioned my book. But um, Oh, have you written a book, John? I have written a book, yeah, and it's a steaming pile of shit. <laughs> Tell us um, more. Tell us more. <laughs> I was a very unhappy man when I wrote that book. If I read it now, and I've never read it since I wrote it, if I read it now, I'd feel like the parent of the person that wrote it, and I'd be thinking, Jesus Christ, are you all right, mate? <laughs> <laughs> the whole book is just me screaming. Yeah. I care so much, and it hurts. <laughs> have, you not re- have, you, have you not read Mark's books? <laughs> oh dear you mean both of them <laughs> um while we're talking about you know our younger selves and the battle against cynicism it, it felt in this country at the last election although we ended up electing a, a sort of populist uh who is very much you know from the system as it was there was the conversation shifted to let's get the young people on board 
and it feels like they might change things for the better. Does that not undermine some of the things you're saying about actually we're all stuck in a cynicism thing? Is there not a band of young people that are engaged and want to change the system? Yeah, but I mean, I, th- I think you should. I mean, I think you should have you know compulsory voting at the age of sixteen. I mean, apart from everything else, if you can if you can get married or die for your country, uh, then it would seem like slightly churlish not to actually give you the ability to vote in an election. Mm. There is a general problem with youth voting, and that is um, if you're young, if you're under thirty, if you're millennial, your experience of democracy is not good. You're not looking at it and thinking it's doing a good job. So um, a few years ago, there was a survey of. Uh, US millennials, and only 30% of them thought it was essential to live in a democracy, which is a huge turnaround from their parents' generation. So I think young people definitely want politics to change, but they are fed up with the current system of doing it. And it, I, mean, I always say, like, you know, um, we're still using a system of, of, of government in most Western democracies that was invented 200 years ago. I mean, if you looked at the Houses of Parliament today and you looked at it for, you know, 200 years ago, there would be no discernible difference. Um, if you looked at the way, you know, the government is run, hardly any discernible difference at all. More people get to vote, but that's about it. It's like handing a young person a vinyl record and they go, what do I going to do with that, granddad? And I think they feel that about politics and, and, and democracy at the moment. So what am I going to do with that? I'd rather do something direct. I'd rather get on the streets or do single issue stuff like, you know, Extinction Rebellion and all that kind of stuff than engage with this clearly archaic system because by engaging with it, I'm endorsing it and I'd rather not because, you know, it'd be like listening to Val Dunican. And now Val Dunican's getting a kick in. I mean, my God. There won't be a CD left in anyone's collection once you finish this absolute torrent of abuse. Well, they can always buy the Quantum Pig album. <laughs> <laughs> If you start on the Wenger boys, then you and I can have a very big falling out. <laughs> How do you square off? that? It sounds like you're saying you both can understand the apathy to a certain extent because for young people, the system clearly isn't working for them. Yeah. And for the older people, they can see that things don't change and they don't believe in the options. But then, Ed, you said you believe in mandatory voting, and I'd you know, i probably agree with you, but what would fill that gap if you're saying to people the system isn't great but you have to vote? What, what are you asking them to vote for? Well, this, I mean, this, the part of the reason is that voter apathy is rife is you know, there is essentially a direct correlation to the level of satisfaction citizens feel about the way their democracy works and their propensity to vote. When we mentioned the vicious circle earlier, you know, and the, and the, the problem is, I think, is that the political class ultimately confused disenchantment with indifference. So they go on and on about voter apathy because that's an easier pill to swallow than the omission that our democracies are actually increasingly unfit for purpose. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if the democracy that you live in can't save you from inequality, where the regulators are lame ducks, I mean, look at what happened in the financial crisis. Like, you know, nobody pretty much went to jail there. Uh, the American regulators had more success taking officials from FIFA to court over the FIFA scandal than they did for their own collapse of the financial system. So the regulators don't seem to be able to do anything. The press, which is supposed to hold that institution to account, is actually part of the problem because it just bats from left to right. And all this happens no matter who gets in, whether it's a left-winger or a right-winger, then you kind of think... Oh, what's the fucking point? And there we go with the Chinese liqueur. Congratulations, <laughs> Mark. You win this week's prize. Yes. Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> oh, I do not feel better. Yeah, that's the taste of 5,000 years of continuous civilization. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that's when it was put in that bottle. I think it's been becoming more and more potent. Oh, I feel like I've just... Just tasted the sort of darkest part of someone's soul. <laughs> I think that's made me a worse person.
Oh, it's burning. <laughs> it's burning. Well, it's quite appropriate in a program about politics to have the taste of a kind of, you know, the world's biggest totalitarian state. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I'm tempted to move straight on to how do we unfuck ourselves because I, I need to ask that question of myself and my innards. But how did we get to this point where the system is so bad? How have we got to a point where there's such apathy and the system isn't working and people aren't engaged enough to even express a preference when asked? Well, I think it's a difficult problem, isn't it? Governing a nation, governing anything is a problem because you've got this sort of constant tension between consulting with your people, which is, you know, the idea of democracy, and then actually getting anything done. The idea is because you can't consult people all the time. So it becomes expensive. You have to sort of constrain the levers of power, essentially, to a smaller and smaller number of people. And the problem, I think, is that the people who have those levers uh, are generally people either with money or they have connections. They're from the existing establishment. Uh, and those people are, A, the existing status quo for whom the system is already working quite well, so why would you change it? And B, because they've got money and influence, they are massively separated from reality and what's going on for most people. So I think the problem is that the political systems literally do not see the world in which they operate. And one of my policy ideas for when I become prime minister, obviously, is every MP should spend two weeks a year living on minimum wage in the poorest area of their constituency. They should spend two weeks a year in the military and they should spend two weeks a year in the city of London and then they should go to work. Is that part of an ongoing reminder of what the situation is or is that a comment that you think most people in politics are what they call you know, career politicians who haven't? I, I think people are distant. One of the things I find very interesting, and I've worked with politicians of all hues when I've been trying to solve problems, is what I find most surprising about nearly all of them, left and right, is how deeply uninformed they are, how they don't think in systems, how they have not travelled, to, to reference last week's episode, um, intellectually around enough so that they, they really don't know what's going on. They don't really know how to question what's going on, but they have got a hobby horse. And, and then they've got themselves into tribes where if somebody comes with an interesting question from the other side, they literally can't countenance it. So I think they're desperately uninformed, and I think they're trapped into a cycle of being uninformed because that's what party politics is. John's been stopped in his tracks. Right? Yeah, I should just explain that the slight pause is that I can no longer hear or see. Um, <laughs> The, the going into a team then, because I, I want to defend politicians and I want to, I, I can see that I think there is a problem that politics itself is a career. And I, I think you're right to suggest that it would be of benefit, obviously, to live, you know, the different lives that exist under your constituency. But I still feel like at the at the outset, you know, we talked in the education episode about young people asking a lot of questions and it's the system that, you know, leaves them not wanting to and just, you know, trying to pass exams. I feel people who go into politics broadly, it's because they do want to change things for the better and they are engaged and, you know, they believe in the power of politics to make people's lives better. Yeah, but I mean, you always get that. You know, we've talked we talk about this time and time again on this podcast. You can work within a system because you believe you want to change something, but then you get co-opted into the system and the system is by its sell-by date. So, you know, every teacher is doing a good job. But as we discussed, the education system needs a reform, okay? People who work, you know, making energy to power your home, they're doing a good job, but the energy system is completely dysfunctional. So I don't think politicians are necessarily doing this Machiavellian thing 
I think they're in a system and a narrative that says this is how it works and it serves the people who are in it and they can tell themselves they're doing a good job. And we've had literally no innovation, not a single piece of innovation really in how we uh, govern ourselves in this country. The last innovation, if you want to call it that, was 1928 when we gave women the vote. You know, that's hardly an innovation, okay? It's just giving more people access to the same system. And it, it annoys the tits off me. Every government that gets in, the prime minister stands up and he or she makes this wonderful speech about innovation and creativity and how much support risk takers and all that kind of stuff. And you go, well, when was the last time you took any risks or did any innovation in the way we're governed? No, I'm still looking at the same system where I get to vote once every four years for two people, both of whom I disagree with, to look after a system that can't keep up with the pace of change and is fucking the planet. Where's the innovation? Fuck you. (laughs) And Mark hasn't even had any Chinese spirit. (laughs) I think I must be breathing it down the microphone. Somewhere traveling along the uh, the sound waves. Yeah, well, um, we did joke about doing drunk futures, didn't we? But I would either we need to now. We're already doing it. I think it's happening. Um, our system is, I guess, built on the belief. You talk about where our system came from. It's because power originally was with the people who owned all the land. They made the decisions because they owned it. That became politicized. And then the labor movement was one of saying, well, no, there has to be a representation of working people. And then those two parties it became a view that, well, actually, if we have both of these arguments, then the truth is over the centuries, as long as they're both you know, fighting their cause, we'll end up somewhere down the middle and everyone will be represented. Yeah, but I think that's the problem. And I think that's the point we we're making earlier. You know, it ends up in this sort of winner-takes-all game. So everything becomes highly tribalized. To get into power, you have to convince us the other side are, you know, are terrible assholes. And then we all play along. And we get invited to choose one side and then subsume ourselves into it, which is partly driven by our first-past-the-post system. And so you try breaking ranks with your side and you get attacked. You know, we've seen it. You know, we've just had a national crisis over the last three or four years in terms of Brexit, which came from a sect within the Tory party. Uh, You know, if you try and speak out against Corbyn, you know, you've got to descend on by momentum. I mean, both parties, if you break ranks with your side, you get a kicking, which makes it very easy to become a part of the problem. Yeah, you get groupthink, and we're we're all playing along. And of course, the social media platforms are picking up on our prejudices. It used to be that our prejudices were 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 sold too, in that you you know you'd buy the newspaper that agreed with you. Now our prejudices are for sale. They package them up and say, "Well, there's a bunch of prejudiced people over here. Would you like to do a micro target at them to get them even more on your side?" You know, so it, this tribalism is is deeply unhelpful for all of us because you know we're all nuanced people. You know, nobody's all mm. completely left or completely right. But you know, you're, you you said, oh, you've got to be, you've got to be Labour, you've got to be Tory, you've got to be whatever, and you have to slavishly follow whatever they say when you're feeling pretty uncomfortable like it. It's a bit like Marillion, actually. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, not Marillion, not yeah. Fish. Well, no, he left 20 years ago. Come on, keep up. But, you know, Marillion, <laughs> I'm a big I'm a big fan of the band, or was a big fan of the band, but it has got to the stage with them now that because they're so unpopular in the mainstream, you become like part of a tribe. If you know, This happens a lot in prog rock, you know, of which I obviously know quite a lot. But Marillion now could literally release the sound of them going to the toilet on a record and it would be hailed as genius by their fans because they've become so tribalised and they have to defend their corner. And it's a bit like that in politics. Politics is like a bad Marillion record. Oh. I don't think we should ever let Mark record sober again. Mark, I, <laughs> I didn't mean to break your heart, but you broke mine. Um, <laughs> Is it too late to say I'm sorry? Well, on this tribal, you know, my my personal experience, the last time I did Have I Got News For You was the the day after the general election result. 
and I did. We recorded it in the morning after the uh, election, so I stayed up all night watching the footage. We recorded at I think ten in the morning, and then uh, I drove to do a uh, gig in Manchester, charity gig. If anyone's interested, it's just the kind of guy I am. <laughs> um, and I came off stage. I was on while the uh, show was going out, and I was trending on Twitter, and uniquely being called either a whinging left-wing shitbag by people who'd voted for Boris and, and Tories telling me to I had a face like a smacked arse and I should get over myself, and being told by people on the left that I'm a Tory right-wing shitbag and a uh, mouthpiece for the BBC and the uh, corrupt media. So, I mean, I, I've, I've never had just that sense of, oh, there's nobody in the middle anymore and everybody hates me because I made jokes about both parties. Yeah, you can piss off all the people equally. There we go. Absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I think, and I think that just—I mean, you, you see that if you open up different newspapers, don't you? When you, you've got the same story being portrayed in wildly different ways, it's like, hang on, are these publications even talking about the same thing? You know, literally, the coverage is so polarized, or from one particular perspective. And I think you know, it even goes back. You know, Mark was alluding to the fact we haven't had any innovation in two hundred years. I mean, just the adversarial layout of the House of Commons exacerbates that. You know, you just got this baying, braying oppositional mobs of puerility and in jokes. I mean, one of the weird things at the moment is watching Prime Minister's questions. You know, between Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson, because it's actually weirdly civilized. You can actually understand what the points being made are because they're not surrounded by hundreds of people shouting their heads off. Mm. You know, and most modern parliament buildings are, are circular, inclusive, you know, encouraging a more sort of collegiate, cooperative and collaborative type of working, not shouting at each other across a trench of no man's land. Yeah, and, and, and the media, I'm afraid, just apes what's going on there in this adversarial system. So, you know, rather than actually questioning the functioning of government, they pick their side, you know, and it just annoys the tits off me. Like, you watch Newsnight, you'll have somebody on there from, you know, the left, and you'll have somebody on from the right, and they'll be discussing some debate, or you know, discussing some question, and, you know, Kirsty Walker or whatever will say, you know, what, what, what do you think there? And, and they'll basically go at each other. Okay, and why? Why at the end does does the presenter never go? Well, that's very interesting. You clearly both care about this. You clearly have strong views in it. You're clearly both well informed. You're clearly uh, passionate enough to come on here and talk about it. How are you going to work together to solve it? Because it's clearly a problem mm. the nation needs to solve. But no, they just they just leave it like that. And do you know why that is? Because the journalism of adversarialness. It's fucking cheap. It's cheap to set up a fight. You don't have to do anything. You just have two people to disagree, and that's really easy to set up and really easy mm. to, to keep going. To actually have a journalism that's a proper political journalism, you'd have to actually understand the issues, understand the nuance, bring people together, and that's expensive. And uh, even the BBC, I'm afraid, is not prepared to put that kind of uh, effort into our political journalism. I'd like to now draw... I'd say I like uh, political journalism uh, is like... Is like Pink Floyd. It's like Roger Waters. <laughs> it's like Roger Waters and David Gilmore who've decided they hate each other and and are throwing ridiculous barbs at each other and had them for twenty years when they could just get together and make another fucking decent Pink Floyd album rather than being shits. Do you think? Um, I guess that's the the Gallagher brothers, is it? For for anyone uh, who wants a reference from popular culture, no, twenty no, years. No, no, that's not the Gallagher brothers because. <laughs> Both, I'll set him off again. Because both both Roger Waters and David Gilmore are talented, whereas only Noel Gallagher <laughs> is talented in Oasis. I think we're going to have to rebrand the title of this podcast to Musical Differences, Brackets, Some Politics. Um, but I'm very much enjoying it. Um, to, to follow on from that point, and I think you're right, that 
the media and our politics is about two people arguing and the belief that actually that is progress when I totally agree with you it isn't. Is the situation at the moment where we have the virus, surely that is the very definition of something that is not party political and is every MP in the House of Commons should be working together and has an obligation to unify and not argue. Do you think after the virus and the virus itself will help us come out of that arguing situation or do you think it'll make it worse no i think it's i think i mean the problem we've got at the moment is you know and you see this on a daily basis is we you don't have a government that believes in openness and dialogue you know and we're all battling through this period of weird uncertainty trying to get our heads and hearts around what is going on around us um and instead you've got the powers that be practicing a sort of policy of obedience and and trust and there isn't any trust and they expect us to do what we're told and i think it's a massive abdication of responsibility it's a very difficult situation to be in but you know what you really need during these type of periods is is transparency and honesty uh, yeah i mean i mean you know they have politicized the situation in the uk and it's really interesting so if you look at australia okay which has a right wing government that's not been very popular you know particularly when you when people are worried about things like climate change or whatever um actually that government said right we're going to get together working committees is going to it's going to be cross-party we're going to work on this together and australia actually has dealt with the crisis far better than the uk so it can be done even across partisan lines but over here they're just politicizing stuff and i have to say if, if labor were in power i'm not sure it would be any different uh, because also they'd be being egged on by our press because everybody's thinking, how can I, how, again, it's just the thing I come back to, to politicians versus engineers. It's kind of like, how can I make this uh, uh, so I can make a political point out of it or get my point across or get my little prejudice or idea, ideology up, up the agenda rather than thinking, how, how do we come, come together? It's a bit like the Eagles. <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't you dare. <laughs> so we'll move on to... Um... <laughs> We'll move on to music from after 1987. We'll move on to how we unfuck ourselves. But before that, I'm sort of assuming the the process of making the situation better is how do we engage more with democracy and make democracy more productive? But it's been such a slaying of the situation. Is there a better alternative? Would you rather we had a dictator or... Well, I mean, I see this is the problem. I think this is one of the arguments that comes up a lot, which is like, you know, stop complaining. Uh, we're better than Russia. We're better than Saudi Arabia. It's like in the, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So I think we mentioned this earlier. Churchill said democracy is the worst system except for all others. There are ways to do democracy that are better. And mm. that is what we're going to come on to now because, John, we can unfuck ourselves and unfuck ourselves we must. Yes. Well, let's let's get into that then. What is the first step? In making things better, what what do what would you do tomorrow? Were it up to you? I mean, I, I think the first thing is always a perspective shift. I mean, it happens in most of these future challenges that we try and address. I'd begin with like by understanding we are not what the politicians and press tell us we are. Um, I've just been reading actually Dutch historian Rutger Bregman's latest book, Humankind, and he says the accepted belief is that we are all by nature selfish and we're governed by self-interest and and actually this is what politicians then try and represent us on yeah but that actually isn't true and as our current crisis shows and i think mark made this point in a previous episode you know it's like if capitalism is so good why does it have to be bailed out by the state once every 10 years um and what we're proving in this crisis is that state intervention like a popular form of solidarity and genuine collective endeavor of the order of the day yeah. I mean, what I found time and time again when I've been searching for you know, improved systems is people want to participate in governance in making their future and their children's future better. 
we want to get involved. We just don't, as we were talking earlier, we don't like the interface. And, you know, the, again, the current crisis has shown that people are very happy to get involved doing socially minded, you know, governmental things by helping yeah. out the vulnerable and all that kind of stuff. So there are loads of ways of doing democracy that is much more participatory. And, and one of those, one of my favorite, and I wrote about this extensively in my second book, available at all good bookshops for an author fucking price. <laughs> <laughs> but one of them is, is is participatory budgeting, which sounds really dull. And, and in some ways it is dull. So this has been going on in cities in Brazil for about 30 years, big cities. It started in a place called Porto Alegre. And it, it was actually designed because Brazil had just come out of a, a brutal dictatorship. And the people were thinking, you know, what's the, the ultimate rebuttal of that? How can we have the most democratic system? And so in Porto Alegre, the neighborhoods kind of groups got together and said, we want the people of the city to have a say in how the, the city's budget is spent. And um, the first administration tried to do it, but fudged it a bit. And then the second administration said, yeah, okay, let's go for it. And they've been doing this thing called participatory budgeting. So, And it's quite a big city, Porto Alegre. And what participatory budgeting does is basically, it's, you know, every year they go out and they say, well, here's the city budget and here's a proportion of it. And depending on the city, it might be 20%, it might be up to 50% going, hey, citizens, how would you like to spend it? And it turns out, if you ask the citizens how they'd like to spend it, they spend it better than three people doing the budgeting in City Hall. And it turns out the more marginalised and the more deprived the citizens you involve in it, the better the decisions are because guess what? The poor know how to spend money most sensibly. Now, the administrative costs of doing it are quite high, okay, because you've got to have this quite detailed budgeting process and it goes on for a while and you know people get upset and you've got to manage all that, okay? But the return on investment is insane okay if you look at what's happened in places like porto alegre or bella horizonte and other places like that you get reduced corruption child mortality goes down um, it makes politicians popular because people now feel the social contract between the state and the citizen is being rebuilt people are happier to pay taxes tax receipts go up even in times of recession because people now trust the government uh, the world bank has done all these studies just saying it's just it's like political and governance gold dust, because it just makes that social contract between citizen and state work better. Now, the, the important thing to do is if you do it for a year or two, nothing changes because people are kind of like, I'm a bit suspicious about that, not sure I want to get involved, not sure I trust the government. You have to do it for a long time. And if you do it for 10 years or 15 years, you change the culture of a place. People expect to be asked. They expect to participate. It's part of the political governance culture. And we have experimented with it a bit in the UK. But the problem is we do it for a bit with small amounts of money in small places. Well, it wasn't that great because it takes people a while to get used to this. But when they do get used to it, boy, the results are fantastic. So yeah. the, the guy who set this up or was the politician who kind of got it going was a guy called Olivier Dutra. And he said democracy's problems are solved by more democracy, not less. Yeah, and I think that's, I think there's something really important in that as well. Is that basically social cohesion is the biggest indicator of happiness and health. So if you, people are feeling included and are actively participating in the process, as Mark said, then that, and that's what's happening in citizens' assemblies. You know, they've become back to the fore thanks to Extinction Rebellion and the kind of historical examples from the abortion referendum in Ireland, and. I mean, they're just obviously completing the UK's climate change um, citizens assembly here. And, you know, what we're realizing is when a, a group, a representative cross section 
from the demographic of the nation of ordinary citizens are selected and put in a position where they are, can be exposed to the arguments in an, in an unbiased and impartial way to be able to time to discuss with their peers and come up with their own decisions, then actually the decisions they come to are much more robust, are much more insightful um, and, and much more radical than what we're actually getting out of the system at the moment. So it's it's about trusting the people. And and the follow-on from that is is about subsidiarity, which is about doing stuff at the most appropriate devolved level. And the UK is absolutely abysmal at this. And uh, if you look at the average local authority in Europe, you know, the average local authority looks after around five and a half thousand people. Now our smallest one in the UK is 34,000 people and our largest one is 1.1 million because we've concentrated and centralised our power. And again, this comes back you know, to this point around trust. And I think we're seeing it in the COVID situation at the moment with this very much sort of command and control type of model. And Mark and I both have a sort of mutual friend, John Alexander, who started a thing called the New Citizenship Project. And he's talked about this a lot because essentially we still have a political system which is being run largely on a kind of you know, a subject basis, i.e. do as you're told, or a sort of slightly consumerist type of basis where everyone's individualistic, apatomized and self-interested, rather than a genuine citizenship type basis where we will be looking at our own selflessness, you know, our own collective endeavors and our own collaborative responsibilities. Uh, and that's what's come to the fore recently. And I think, you know, if you look at those three things, citizens' assemblies, subsidiarity uh, and genuine citizenship, then we'd start to see things look very, very different. And the thing to say is those things are happening a bit, you know. That's so just it, what I was going to ask because yeah. I always get this sense of you always tell me there's solutions out there, but I can't get my head around where does the shift happen? So they're happening now, are they? These things are out there and, and you know, part of what Ed and I do is try and bring these ideas, you know, to the fore is one of the reasons we do the podcast, you know. I mean, there's a brilliant project called Local Trust and this actually is a UK government project and what they decided was, to Ed's point, that actually central people deciding what to do with the money and how to spend stuff hasn't really worked. So Local Trust go to some of the poorest communities uh, in the UK and go, here's a million quid. And they don't put any kind of criteria on it. They go, here's a million quid. Now you decide what you want to do with it. And by the way, we're going to help you, you know, learn to budget and whatever. And, that. so, so, and it takes a while, but it turns out that local trust is doing amazing work and people are regaining a connection to their communities, to each other, because they have to have these negotiations. So again, the closer you get to people, hmm. the better it is. And one of the things I find time and time again in my work, whatever it is, is that people divided by politics are very soon brought together around a project if you give people something to build together 97 percent of their politics left or right disappears you ask people where do the streetlights need to go do we need a school does the health center need a refurbishment pretty much everybody agrees yeah and i think that i mean the other thing that comes off the back of that is i think we should also potentially have compulsory voting places like australia already do so it's actually you know it's, it's a legal requirement and obligation to vote uh, and that at least allows those people who are disenfranchised or disengaged to to tick a box saying reopen all nominations or you know or tick something like none of the above um so at least we can accurately measure this discontent rather than just have it written off as voter apathy the fact that everyone's just so pissed off with the whole thing i also think you know 
especially given the Brexit shenanigans of the last few years, having a, an actual written constitution might not be a bad idea uh, in the UK because what we've seen in the last four years is a very cynical gaming, if you like, of an unwritten constitution which is based on a whole bunch of rather archaic rules and customs. And that is not serving us either. And we're actually one of only five countries in the world that doesn't have a written constitution, one of which is Saudi Arabia. So make of that what you will. To pamper our listeners, um, a lot of the questions that we had in um, or emails related to to what you're just saying. So uh, Uma, who's a regular correspondent, says uh, hello again. His question was, if power was given more to the local people and committee system with less interference from government, um, would that make things better? And on that, I will turn to another question from a listener then. Janet, so she's she's emailed about the, the current situation and the, the effect on people getting married and all those things. But her question is, does religion have any part to play in British politics in the 21st century? Do you have any feelings on that? Well, and I think that's part of the thing about having a written constitution. I mean, you know, part at the moment, our rules and customs still have, you know, the Church of England as a key player, especially in the House of Lords. You know, so this is where we get to crowbar in the, the classic uh, term anti-disestablishmentarianism, uh, which every uh, schoolboy remembers from mm. their uh, educational days. But, you know, actually, we should be I think disestablishmenting uh, and getting getting the church out of politics, or, or or at least I mean you know I think this is this is where we're going to get kicked by various people. I, if not necessarily getting it out of politics, I think the church and, and religions have, like everybody else, have a perfect right to express their views, but they should be expressed proportionately with everybody else. And is I think the House of Lords I think automatically has something like twenty two bishops in there, which seems to me to be a little bit disproportionate. So in terms of devolving power further down and making people closer, that it sounds like a great deal of work administratively. Yeah, but it's like Bismarck, Otto von Bismarck said, laws are like sausages. It's better not to see them being made. But actually, you know, like we've been outlining, the alternative is messier. Actually, we should get involved in the sausage making because then we might make sausages that aren't full of brains and testicles. Yeah, I mean, as the participatory budgeting example shows, um, uh, the, yes, it is expensive administratively, but the return on investment is absolutely enormous. So, you know, it's a bit like we're seeing at the moment. Everybody said, oh, you know, a functioning healthcare system is too expensive. Well, actually, it's really expensive not to have it, we find out. So it's a false argument. It's, it's a logical fallacy. So broadly, we, we change the system that way, but we still obviously would have MPs. Were, I know you nearly got elected, Ed. Were I to... <laughs> elect both of you now as uh, the MP for Prog Rock uh, and the MP for Slug Circuses um, in the cabinet of Rico. Do you have any sort of instant policy ideas that you, that you would want passed? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would do instant electoral system reform. I mean, our first past the post system, I touched on it earlier, but, you know, it's a gerrymandered misrepresentative shit show. It leaves millions of us uh, with effectively wasted or pointless votes in safe constituencies. And, and actually for 90% of the time since 1935, we've had single party so-called majority governments, but none of them have had the support of the majority of voters. Yeah, and the current government we've got in on 43% of the voter turnout, they gained 48 seats through a 1.2% increase in the share of the vote. So actually, 57% of people who actually bothered to vote didn't vote for this government. But as turnout was 67% overall, that means about a third of the electorate actually voted for this landslide majority government. So, you know, you've got to change that system. We've got to have some kind of proportional representation if you want to have a more representative democracy. Mark? Uh, I would make prog rock a compulsory study in all schools, obviously, <laughs> because that leads to a fully rounded individual. 
Um, I think my, one of my big ideas would be I would. Um, I noticed that none of you questioned that. Did I just get that one in? No, I just. Um, I'm just going to edit that out. So. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, one of the things I think I'm always trying to think of policy ideas that, that will work across what would be considered traditional left or right boundaries, and uh, what I would probably do is I'd, I'd introduce corporation tax that went up or down depending on how good a corporate citizen you were. So if you were you know, hot on climate change, social justice, treated your employees well, your corporation tax rate would go down massively. And if you didn't, it would go up. And I think that works for, for, for everybody because it stimulates the economy by having low tax rates for innovative businesses, but it also looks after our environment. So we're kind of you know, using the market as a servant to the things we need rather than as the master. Love it. Ed, you do your one. Mark, you do your one. What about me as a as a non MP as a as a listener? What can I do? Because I feel like I can't enact those changes that we talked about. Can I do anything? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean start by being kinder to people. I think we're all learning that through uh, the last few months. We need to basically sort of reoccupy the centre ground of politics, and that can't be done if we're all continually doubling down on partisanship. You know, and in that sense, I would suggest let's all stop buying newspapers uh, and try to use you know genuinely non-partisan news sources. Uh, we have the BBC for a reason. There's others like Positive News and, and Tortoise Media and Byline Times. You know, let's try and get away from some of our corporatized media, which is not serving any of us. Yeah. And get involved with things locally, as many people have been doing. You know, actually, my community, we, we've decided that we're going to have community days now. So, you know, after the crisis, we're going to we're going to work with you know local employers and whatever to say, you know, one day a month, everybody gets a day off to do something good for the local community so i think you know you know keep that momentum going um as i say you know think about what's, what's to be built think like an engineer not like a politician and um to echo i suppose or go on from ed's point about being kinder i would say try not to be cynical i mean it's really easy to be cynical isn't it you know because we, we dress up our kind of apathy as wisdom and it's culturally very exciting in the uk isn't it i mean we think it's great to be cynical i mean you, you know we kind of wear it as a badge of honor Pays my bills. Indeed. I mean, you come out, you come out in the womb in this country and they go, bad move, terrible out here. Um, <laughs> so, so, but, but cynicism really, as Ed and I often say, is really just obedience to the status quo. All cynics do is bitch about what's wrong, but they won't do anything to change it. Yeah. So stop being cynical. You can be sceptical. You can kick the tires on things, but you've got to imagine things can be better. The more of us do that, maybe we'll get the world we need. Yeah. Kindness pays more than it costs. I think, you know, there's a theme that comes up a lot in conversations I'm having with people at the moment. And I think that's where our sort of transcendence starts to come from. I mean, essentially our politics is trying to wrangle with impossible challenges of, you know, COVID, climate change, uh, and and everything else that we have to try and, try and reconcile in the coming years. And so we're all going to have to be more considerate and compassionate if we're going to be able to do that. I want to say amen, but I feel like that would piss off Janet, our uh, human listener. But I think, I mean, there is something else here as well. It's like, you know, because we're having politics, you know, rewritten in front of our eyes at the moment, and I think people have become more open-eyed about what it all means, I think we now have a real opportunity to hold all our politicians' feet to the fire. You know, here we are in another situation where, miraculously, we can somehow find a trillion pounds to fix all the immediate problems as everyone gets furloughed and the economy threatens to crash. Uh, and we can always do that when we have a war or a financial crisis. And perhaps we could do that to fix the, the lives of our disenfranchised frontline workers uh, and to address a climate crisis. Here, here. Uh, gentlemen, thank you. Um, we did end positively. And I, I honestly didn't think we would. That was uh, certainly the first half of that. I was feeling quite uh, depressed. 
and uh, I, I feel much more positive now. So we'll move on to pointless futures. It sort of feels like if we don't do those things you asked, our actual future is our pointless future. But um, do we have a, uh, a piece of tech or a, a possible future? Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> Cambridge Analytica or the pointless future? Well, there's something terrifying, isn't there, about micro-messaging of people. It's like it's, it's a kind of form of political campaigning you can't see, so it's very hard to campaign against. Um, and if there's, you know, anything which is the encapsulation of the opposite of honesty and transparency in politics, it's that type of, you know, social media micro messaging and manipulation. I find it, I find it deeply concerning, and it should definitely be a pointless future. Yes, but uh, that's bringing us back to being depressed again. I think. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. have you got, have you not got something like a spoon that you can vote on or something? <laughs> Coldplay have reformed, and 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 they might do another album. That that seems to me like a pretty pointless future You've thing. You've got to be on board with Coldplay. They're not even touring to save the bloody planet, man. Well, you know, some of my friends helped them with that, but um... oh, so you did it. You convinced Coldplay it was a good idea not to tour environmentally because you didn't want them to tour. No, it's not that. But I tell you what, when it comes to emissions, there's one emission they could cut right away, which is their fucking music. <laughs> okay, I think we need to let um, we need to let certain members of the team go and have a lie down, and I recommend a nice sugary snack. Have yourself a little Jaffa cake or something. I'm gonna um, have a bottle of Rioja, mate. <laughs> Oh, that'll sort it right out. I'll look forward to the 3 a.m. rants on the uh, WhatsApp group. Uh, thank you both. Uh, it's always an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening. Uh, if that has, as I'm sure it has, sparked some thoughts in your mind uh, and you want to get in touch with us, then here's how. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Uh, so have a wonderful week thank you for listening we'll be back next week when we'll be discussing Mark's thoughts on Emerson Lake and Palmer (laughs) Um, but until then take great care of yourselves see you soon bye bye